0: We are in a Christmas series called Christ-miss. Christ-miss. This is our second it. Uh, typically, if you're joining us, typically we teach three books of the Bible, and we are in the book of Mark, but we're going to take a few weeks and think about some topics uh, that lend themselves to the, the season of Christmas. And uh, so the idea behind the Christ-miss series is that we're trying to get underneath the layers of cultural Christmas and look underneath for substance. Uh, cultural Christmas has picked up a lot of baggage and a lot of things uh, that we need to ask, wh- what are these things and what's underneath it? What's the substance underneath it? We're looking for gospel substance in cultural Christmas. So last week we talked about the subject of wonder. We talked about how true wonder is found exclusively in the gospel and how Jesus came to give us true wonder. This week we're going to look at family and the subject of family and how Jesus came to give us true family. I'm just going to say right up front, this is not a prohibition series. This isn't me telling you that you can't make gingerbread houses and look at Christmas lights and drink eggnog. Uh, This is actually looking to find the substance underneath those things, the value underneath those things, and figure out what some of these traditions that we all celebrate actually came from. And of course, they came from the advent of Christ. Amen. So we're going to talk about family this morning. Let's pray and get into it. Father, as always, Lord, we need you we need you to speak. God, this morning we're talking about lofty things, huge things, eternal things, the cosmic, heavenly, eternal reality of the family of God. And Lord, we need your help. We need your help to think rightly and to apply these things rightly. So Father, we thank you for your word and the truth within it, and we pray that you would lead us and guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, family, here we go. When you think family, you think Christmas, and when you think Christmas, you think family, right? It's one of those ingredients that just goes with Christmas. Now, when I say Christmas and family, all of your minds probably go to a different thing. Some of you guys, when I say Christmas and family, your mind goes to the Christmas family shuffle. Does anyone know what I mean by the Christmas family shuffle? It's it's really the juggling act of trying to be... Equitable between all of the different facets of your family. Uh, so, if you are married, then you have two families. If you are married to families that have been divorced, then you have four families. If you've been married, you, you get where I'm going, right? So, the Sunday or the the, the Christmas morning shuffle is: we got to spend three hours here. You got to eat some food. We got to eat some dessert, and then we're gonna get in the car, and then we're gonna drive, and we're gonna spend three hours here, and we're gonna eat some food, and we're gonna eat some dessert, and then we're gonna get in the car, and then we're gonna drive to the next place, and spend three hours there. So when I say Christmas and family, some of you guys think of the Christmas shuffle. Anybody? Christmas shuffle? Okay. Uh, When I say Christmas and family, some people think of dread. They think of the fact that the people they've been trying to avoid for 300 and uh, how many days are in a year? 364 days out of the year, now they have to hang out with for an entire day. And they know it's going to end in a fight or an argument or some kind of an insult or some kind of hurt feelings. For some people, they think of Christmas and, and, and family. They think of joy. And, and sweetness and an endearing moment with the people that they love. That's how I think about Christmas. I think and this is a time to be with my favorite people. Others, when you say the words Christmas and family, you think of sadness. You think about the people that won't be there. You think about the losses that you've had. You think about your mother or your father that used to be with you every year on Christmas. Or you, For some people, Christmas is a yearly reminder of what they don't have. That they don't have family. That they're alone. So Christmas and family has a lot of different applications, but this morning we're going to talk about what Christmas truly has to do with true family. Some of the questions I want to run after with you this morning are these, why is the feeling of true family something we ache for, yet seldom obtain? How can something like family bring so much joy and simultaneously bring so much pain and so much sorrow? And you guys have pain in your life related to family? Trauma, hurt, sorrow, brokenness, dysfunction? There's a lot of that in family. Why is the idea of family so deeply tied to Christmas? What is it about Christmas and family that are connected? Is this a cultural construct or are there deeper roots here? Now, as I said in the beginning, we're, we're doing a series where we're trying to get underneath some of these cultural phenomenons and ask is there, is there a gospel weight? Here. Let's scrape off the barnacles of what Christmas has become and let's just ask is there something substantive underneath? Now, to talk about family, I want you this morning to picture a house. We're going to start upstairs. And then I'm going to tell you how to get downstairs, and then I'm going to tell you what it looks like when you get downstairs. So this is the family house. When I say upstairs, I mean we're going to look at the big picture of family. We're going to zoom way out. We're going to ask biblical proportion questions about family. What happened to it? Where did it come from? Where, where is it now? That's upstairs. Then we're going to ask the question, how do we move upstairs, downstairs? In other words, how do we become part of the family? How do we become part of the family of God? And then thirdly, we're going to ask, what does it look like to be the family of God? Okay? Upstairs, staircase, downstairs. If you want to track with me, that's kind of what we're going to do. First, we're going to start upstairs. We're going to talk about the theology of God's family. And you're going to have to give me about 15 minutes to nerd out on you just a little bit because family is one of the most interesting topics in the Bible uh, in its totality. Some of you may never have heard this before, so I'm going to assume that you haven't. Some of you need to be reminded of this. When we think about family, we have to start all the way back at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, because what was family? What is family? At its very beginning, family is a creation of God. God formed the family. Did you know God actually has made family twice in creation? The first time that he made family, he made it through Adam and Eve, the first couple. He made them to become one flesh. He said, you will leave your father and mother. You will cleave to one another. You will become one flesh. And in that family unit, you will make babies. Now there's this really important theological thing that you need to remember. It's called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. That is the instructions that God gave Adam and Eve on what they were to do through the family. And it basically went something like this. God told Adam and Eve, that through the family, I want you to make lots of babies, fill the earth with my image, because our human bodies, our images, our souls, our images of God, fill the earth, and then I want you to subdue it, and I want you to reign over it. Now, this was God's good plan for how he was going to cover and fill his good earth with his good kingdom reign through this mechanism called the cultural mandate. Can you say cultural mandate? Okay, cultural mandate. One of the most important verses in the Bible is when God said, go and fulfill the cultural mandate. Fill the earth with my image. Fill the earth with good stewardship. Cultivate the earth with my good kingdom reign. And the engine by which the, king, the, the cultural mandate was to be accomplished was what? Family. It was Family. Filling the earth, subduing the earth, it was all to be done within this engine of family. Now something happens. We see formation in Genesis 1. We quickly see deformation in Genesis 3. We see that the family becomes a target of the enemy. Sin's agency comes through family. It is the failure of the familial roles that Adam and Eve shared That actually led to the the fall of humanity in the first place. Satan comes and tempts Eve. Adam follows. They both sin. They both relinquish God's rule in their life and decide to be lied to, which leads to the deformation of the institution of family. And for thousands of years, we have been living in a world where the reality of family has been perverted, twisted, deformed, shattered, and broken. What do we see immediately? The first thing that happens when the curse enters into the world, the barrel, if you will, of the gun of curse, is aimed directly at the institution of family. What is the what is the repercussions of the curse in Genesis three? First of all, it is that reproduction itself would become painful and deadly. Any women in here ever had a child? Any men in here ever had watched a woman have a child? It's cursed. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It wasn't meant to be painful. We live in a day where we have good medical hospitals and facilities where you can usually survive. But the reality for most women in most of history was that 50% of them would die at some point in child labor. So the curse... Is affecting deeply this institution of family, and the very thing that God was going to use to fill the earth with His glory is now cursed and broken, this reproductive system. The curses, the barrel of the curses gun, was not only aimed at reproduction itself, but also the roles within the family. Roles within a family are now destroyed. And twisted and broken. That's why Genesis 3.16, God tells the, uh, the woman, he tells Eve, uh, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. In other words, you will want something other than what he wants, but he'll domineer you. That's a result of the breakdown of the institution of family. Now, immediately, if you read the book of Genesis, you're going to see the result of the breakdown of the family. You're going to see the result of the deformation of the family. And examples, for instance, like Adam blame-shifting his wife. God comes and says, hey, what did you do? And he says, no, oh, it wasn't me. It was the lady you just created. She did it. Throws his wife under the bus. And then a few verses later, what do we see? We see Cain and Abel, brother kills Brother. The archetypical sin of murder happens within the institution of family. Is it any surprise that the first real obvious sin that we see is a brother killing the brother? Guys, my point here is that family itself has been warped, twisted, contorted, broken, and perverted. There is no surprise that the enemy hates families. He hates anything that resembles a family because that was the thing God created and made to fill the earth with his glory. Family has been under attack since the beginning. All throughout the Old Testament, we see stories of f- dysfunctional families. David and his son Absalom, unable to reconcile. Jacob and Esau, unable to reconcile. We see the beauty of monogamy replaced with the disgusting reality of polygamy all throughout the Old Testament. The institution of family has been under attack for thousands of years. The most Important thing to note, though, about the deformation of the family is how sin and the entrance of sin into the world was spread across all the world by the reproduction of human beings. See, God's plan was to take reproduction, family, childbirth, and use it to spread his glory and to spread the goodness of his kingdom reign across the world. And instead, sin came in and used reproduction and the family as its agent to spread sin across the world. And the result being death. We all now find our lineage as human beings, on a human level, we now find our lineage back to our first father, Adam. That is the deformation of family. And the Old Testament makes it very clear that every family has an executive figurehead. Every family has a patriarch, and that patriarch sets the tone for the family. So as humanity as a whole, you are individuals, but you are also part of this thing called humanity. Your executive figurehead, your, uh, your firstborn of the human species, the prototype of all humans is Adam. And just like Adam sinned, we now sin. Adam allowed sin into the world, and now sin has spread throughout the world. So the cultural mandate has been hijacked. Sin and the enemy have taken it over and used it to propagate sin and death across the world, to the point where we now feel our world is so dysfunctional we don't know how to keep living in it. So what is the answer? The answer is that we need a new family. We need a new Adam. We need a new representative. We need a new executive figurehead. We need a new new prototype of humanity. Because see, the, the brokenness of the human species is so deeply ingrained in our DNA that it cannot be removed through external measures. Policies and politicians cannot change it. We need new blood flowing through our veins. And this is where the good news of the new family of God comes in. It's no surprise that one night, a teenage girl who was experiencing the worst pain she'd ever felt in her life through the cursed reality of childbirth, as she goes from contraction to contraction, it's no surprise that God took that very reality to birth the new Adam into the world that he might save that world from the curse itself. God used reproduction. He used childbearing that he might redeem it from its own curse. Romans 8.29 says, I know this is theology, but hey, guess what? It's important. Tune in, okay? Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, listen, in order that he might be the firstborn, who? Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus becomes the new seed of a new humanity. That's why Christmas is so intrinsically tied to family because Christmas is the moment that we were meant to celebrate that Jesus came to start a new family, not the family of Adam, but the family of Christ. He sets a new template. He sets a new trajectory. He is the faith racer, the originator of faith, Hebrews says. He's the pioneer of a new human species. And all who find their life in him file behind him. He is the firstborn of many. That doesn't mean he's created. It means he's the first one to enter into this new created reality that we as Christians now are part of. Isn't that cool? Are you tracking with me? So we see the formation of family, we see the deformation of family, we see the reformation of family with Christ, so what? What that means is that the cultural mandate is now fully realized through the person of Jesus. Except now the goal is not to make human babies, it's to make spiritual babies through the act of discipleship. You understand that when Jesus told the disciples to go forth and make disciples of all nations, he was recapitulating the cultural mandate Instead of go fill the earth with babies, he says go fill the earth with spiritual disciples that have been born again into a new world, into a new line, into a new family, the family of God whose firstborn brother is Christ. It's exciting. He reforms the family and Jesus is the it factor. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because Christmas is the moment that a new family began. The family of God. So, what? Well, the blood of Christ supersedes the blood of Adam. There are two families in this world the, the family of Adam and the family of Christ. Which are you in? Which are you in? Now, this leads to the second question. We've been upstairs in the theological. Let's move downstairs and let's ask how do we get from the upstairs to the downstairs? How do we get into the family of God? Maybe you're saying, okay, I don't want to be in the family of Adam. I don't want to be in the cursed, deformed, broken, uh, twisted family of this world. I want to be in the family of Adam. How do I enter? What What do I do to get in? Well, let me tell you here's how you get from the upstairs to the downstairs. Number one, you receive the adoption of the Father. Here's the beauty of the new family of God. You don't gain entrance because of geography. You don't gain entrance because you deserve it. You don't get entrance because you just happen to be born into the right family. You gain entrance because a gracious and kind, eternal God chose you before the foundations of the earth and said, those are my kids. In the first century world, the word adoption actually meant you had more value in many ways than the biological children you were born to because for the Roman world to adopt a child meant that they really wanted that child. They chose them. So the New Testament language is that we are adopted into the family of God. Entrance doesn't come by birth. It comes by adoption. Let me read for you Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Listen. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. If you're part of the family of God, it's because you've been adopted into the family of God. What a good God we have that he adopts us. What I love about this is that God's family is made up of the family-less for those of you that Christmas is a reminder that you don't have family I want you to remember that you've been adopted into the eternal family the superior the superior family of the the blood of Christ an entrance into this is not based on geography but based on God's grace so receive the father's adoption secondly we need to receive the son's work of redemption did you know that your adoption was not free adoption can be costly Anyone who's ever adopted knows, thousands of dollars can be spent. The father adopted you, if you are in the household of God. He adopted you, and he spent the blood of his son. That was the cost of adoption, and it was a heavy cost. It was the most expensive cost that heaven could pay. was the blood of his son. To be adopted, the price tag was Jesus' death, you are purchased both from the righteous wrath of God and purchased from the grips of the enemy and the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light because Jesus paid the debt for you. Let me read Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to listen, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. Jesus paid for your adoption. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba just means like Papa. It's the first word out of the mouth of, of a Middle Eastern child, Abba, Papa. We have this endearing relationship to the Father now because Jesus has made that possible. Verse 7, so you are no longer a what slave, but you're a son. The picture there should draw our mind back to Israel and Egypt. They went from slaves to the Son of God, Israel. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's this incredible thing that happens on the cross, okay? And if you want to dig in and just, and just see if I'm telling the truth, uh, or if I'm right here, do it this week. But there's this is really interesting thing. Jesus uh, really never refers to the disciples as his brother, or as his brothers, until a very specific moment. You know when that moment is? It's the moment after the cross when Jesus appears to Mary in the garden. And Mary thinks he's the gardener. And then after saying her name in this very endearing, special way, Mary, she turns and she realizes who she is and she runs and she clings to him because he's her Lord. And he says, don't cling to me. And it's not because he doesn't love her. It's not because he doesn't want her to love him. It's because he says, I have more business to do. I need to go to the right hand of the Father. I need to ascend and take my seat at the right hand of the Father so that my work can continue through the power of the Spirit. And then he says, go. Now let me just read it for you because it's so good. He says, go and tell my brothers. This is John 20, 17. Go and tell what? My brothers. First time he says that. I am ascending to my Father and your Father my god and your god he says it's subtle but the first thing out of jesus's mouth to mary is go and tell my brothers why because i've purchased their adoption they are now part of the family of god the cost was the blood of christ what a beautiful reality we've received the father's work of adoption we've received the son's work of redemption and Thirdly we receive the spirit's work of incorporation are you noticing a Trinity thing there? Every part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, has a work in your salvation. The Father has adopted you, the Son has ransomed you, and the Spirit has incorporated you. What does incorporation mean? Incorporation means you have been born again of the Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, if you, unless you are born of the Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. It means that to be adopted, you need to be reborn into a spiritual family, into an eternal family. You get a new soul, later you'll get your a new body and your new soul will fit your new body perfectly. You are born again. Incorporation also means participation. It means that now you become part of the organism that is the life of Christ's body. That is a supernatural, eternal reality that we don't even understand. You are grafted in, incorporated in, merged in to this organism that is the life of Christ, enhanced by the Spirit of God. And if you are a Christian, you have been adopted into a family. That means that you have a family life. So many Christians don't live that family life, but it's still theirs. Romans 8, 13, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. How do you know you're a son of God or a daughter of God? You are led by the Spirit because he's incorporated you. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoptions as sons. The spirit applies the work of Christ. I know this is theological, but hey, this is important. The father adopts you. Jesus paid for you, and the spirit applies the payment and the ransom and births you into the new spiritual life. Now, I can synthesize all that down into a very simple thing. Faith In Christ leads to the adoption of the Father. The Spirit does the work. He has called us. We say yes, amen. We believe in him. We put our faith in him. We enter the family of God. Now let's, we've been upstairs. We've come down the stairs. Now let's get on the ground level. Let's talk about what this really looks like. What does it look like to be in the family of God? Let's get practical. There are many pictures in the New Testament that are used to describe this thing called the church. One of them is church. Church is a Greek word called ekklesia. It just means congregation, assembly. Okay? But there's many analogies. Um, and each analogy that's given in the New Testament has a, 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 a sort of a function. It's trying to communicate something about the reality that is God's family. Uh, one of them is the way. That was one of the first things Christians called themselves. The way. What does it tell us about the church? Well, it tells us that the way is a practice. That it's a, a practice and it's a path. It's a person. We follow Jesus. Some people refer to the church as the kingdom or part of the kingdom. That conveys power and rule and citizenship. We see the church referred to uh, in Peter and other places as a temple. That is meant to teach us that we are, as the body, as the church, we are a sanctified space meant to facilitate the presence of God. Other places in the New Testament refer to us as the bride. That's meant to convey our purity and our sanctity, that we exist for the glory of Christ. Another analogy in the New Testament is body. The church is referred to as a body, and that's meant to uh, point to our complexity and, and our mission, that we have a function, we do something. But family, believe it or not, family is actually the primary vernacular used to describe Christians in the New Testament. It's actually the common lexicon that Christians would use to describe each other in the New Testament. If you read the book of Acts, you're going to see them referring to each other as brother, sister, mother in the faith, father in the faith. Those, that language is common and it's used throughout the New Testament. We have many examples of this. One of the most beautiful moments, I think, is the moment where Jesus on the cross calls John the apostle over, and he says, John, this is your mother now. And he takes Mary's hand, essentially, and puts it with his and says, you are now family. Now, why is Jesus doing that? Well, it could be uh, because he's reverencing Mary. It could be because he loves Mary. It also could be that he is instituting this new eternal reality that the family of God is together and that we are one Family is a beautiful example. And so we're going to double click on it. We're going to ask the question, what does it mean to be the family of God? Let's get ground level here. Now I'm going to point out 10 things. I'm going to do it really quickly. 10 things that come to mind when we think about family. What is it about the family analogy that's meant to be embodied in the way that we act as the church? So 10 distinctives of family in the metaphor, if you want to write them down. What do we know about family? Number one, one, families take care of each other. Families take care of each other. Now, thinking of the earthly family here, usually it's true that when you need something, the first person you're going to call is who? Somebody in your family. For me, anytime anything ever broke, I call my dad. That's what I do. This week I had a thing where I was trying to figure out maybe how I could siphon gas out of a broken car that we were getting rid of. I don't know. I think, well, I'll call my dad. Well, I can't call my dad. Okay, well, then let me call someone like that. But the reality is we call family first, right? Because family family takes care of each other. That's why Jesus, in his last moments, before he went to the cross, the one thing he wanted them to understand was that they were supposed to take care of each other. That's why he got down on his hands and knees and he grabbed a basin of water and he began to wash the filthy feet of the disciples who wore sandals all day. Why did he do that? Was it an analogy to teach us to love the world and be kind to everyone? No. The lesson was very simple. He said, Do this to one another. Who's one another? Is that everybody in the world? No. That's those who are of the family of God. Wash each other's feet. He said, I did this as an example for you so that you would know that a defining characteristic of the family of God is that we take care of one another. You, you guys know families, and, and every family has a defining characteristic. For some people, it's like a physical characteristic. Like, oh, I know that knows you're a part of that family, you know? Or, or that, so for them it's like the way they walk. I had someone tell me the other day that they just, I reminded so much of my dad, the way I walked. You know, there's, there's, there's family characteristics. Well, the characteristic of the family of God is to be what? The way. We love each other. That's to be the thing that people look at and go, oh, you are a Christian. There's actually a Bible verse that says that. John 13, 34, a new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by what? By the way you love one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another if we want to be a church that reaches the lost, if we want to be a church that sees people come to Christ, if we want to be a witness to our community, I would suggest that the most important thing we can do is love each other supernaturally. That's the way the world is impressed. That's the way the world looks and goes, there's something different about those guys. Jesus sent us out to love one another. Now, this is why it's so sad when things like COVID and vaccines and masks are breaking apart the church all over social media because it's actually anti clients It's actually working against the mission. The world is looking at like, why are Christians fighting? Our defining characteristic is that we take care of each other. Number two, families share a table. Families share a table. Now in our culture that's not always true but in first century culture I assure you that it was. And by share a table I don't just mean you have a meal I mean that you share everything. In Acts In the early church, it said that they had all things in common. In fact, the word used for community has at its root koine. The word is koinonia, and koine is common. They had all things in common. They ate the same food. They drank the same water. They did life together. They shared a table. They spent time together, and that's why Hebrews 10 says, don't neglect the gathering of the saints. Part of being a family is that we're together. We share a home. We share a life. We share our time together. That's being a family. Number three, families fight and drive each other nuts, right? Maybe you guys have perfect families. I don't know. My brother and I, our professional, our, our second profession is bugging each other. I mean, it's like, that's what we do. We like it. It's fun. Families drive each other nuts, okay? That's the reality of family. And when this, this idea of spiritual family is instated, I think that's in mind. We're often more willing to be offended or to offend in a family And I would actually say sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a good thing. There's this verse in Hebrews 10, 24. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That word stir up, when you look at it in the Greek, it's frustrate. The church is to frustrate one another. If you're not frustrated with the church on some level, you're not at a family level yet. You're just sipping coffee and sneaking out the back door. And we love you, but we pray that we could frustrate you at some point. We pray that you would trust us to drive you nuts. Okay, Family bugs each other. P- family frustrates each other. And this is the problem is that we, we go to a church and we start to get plugged in and we think it's the great, oh, I love the pastor, love the preaching, love this, love the coffee, it's great. And then a year later, hate the pastor, hate the coffee, hate the everything. And we go to the next church and then we love that church. And then, you know, okay, the problem with that is that God's trying to teach us a lesson and the lesson is that the family of God is frustrating and you keep leaving and you never learn the lesson. Starts over every single time. Go somewhere, stay somewhere, get frustrated. That's the family of God. We're a family. We bug each other. That's how we grow. Friction grows. Number four, families stay together. Families stay together. Now this analogy breaks down in our culture because we have redefined family to be the people that don't tell us what we don't want to hear. We have redefined family to be those that will love me for who I am, accept me, accept me the way I are. And my mom's so judgmental that I'm just going to go find a new family. But in the first century, don't miss this, in the first century, in Jesus' day, the call to family was the highest social commitment possible. To leave and forsake your family, that's why the prodigal son is so scandalous, right? To leave and forsake your family was social suicide. You don't leave family. You can unfriend friends, but you can't unfamily family. We are family. We are one, and we don't leave each other. We have to recognize this. why John 17 records Jesus' prayer, and the very nucleus of that prayer is that they would be one, as we are one, he says to the Father. Oneness, unity. Number five, families share a lineage, a bloodline, and a destiny lineage and a bloodline. What what makes you family with someone on the earth? Well, you you have the same parents, grandparents. You have the same aunts and uncles. You you share a bloodline. Uh, You share a lineage and you share a destiny to some degree. You're tied together. Well, in the family of God, our lineage is what? Grace. Our lineage is grace. What do we have in common with one another? We've all been forgiven. We've all been adopted. We were all lost. And forlorn, and God loved us. Grace is our binding agent. It is our lineage. Our lineage is grace. Our bloodline is Jesus. His blood flows through our veins. Our destiny is God's kingdom. We're all going to the same place. We will be together forever. and eternity. Have you ever thought about that? Our destiny is together. Number six, families share a name. Families share a name. You know, some people uh, understandably change their name in the world because their name is attached to too much pain. I know many friends that had abusive fathers, neglectful fathers, and they chose not to take their father's last name. They chose to get a new name, and that's totally understandable. Some people just have kind of awkward, quirky families and they don't like to admit their last name. That's fine. And everybody goes through a phase, I think, in Christianity where you try to do the same thing. Don't know if I really want to be lumped in with these guys. Christians. They're kind of quirky, right? Be it good or be it bad, Christianity has a name for itself. The reality of family is that we rise and we fall together. We share a name, and that name is not our own. That name is not evangelicalism. The name is not conservatism, Protestantism, Presbyterianism. The name is Christ. We share his name. We are Christians. I'm never going to be ashamed of the word Christian. I don't care how much it gets dragged through the mud because the word Christian means like Christ. And that's what a Christian is. Like Christ. Like it or lump it, you're part of the family of God. And Jesus, according to Hebrews 2.11, Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers. Listen, you don't get to choose who's in the family. It's part of being in a family. See, we like to think about church like we think about everything else, like it's Build-A-Bear or Mod Pizza. Yeah, leave off the pepperoni, I'll take some extra olives, and I don't like anchovies. Yeah, that's not how it works in the family of God. Our job is to love those whom Jesus has called, and whom Jesus loves. The problem is we start picking on the people that he loved, and Jesus says, hey, you're punching my bride. This is my bride. This is whom I love. We share a name. We share a name. Ephesians 4, or Ephesians 3, 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We are all his kids. We're mutually invested a sign of maturity is that you love the bride, even the most unhealthy parts of the bride. Number seven, families are made up of distinct and important roles. Distinct and important roles. Now, we've jettisoned the idea of roles within the family institution because it's not woke enough, not progressive enough. Roles are too rigid, okay? That's just a cultural construct. No, no. Roles are actually part of the design of God's feature in the family. We have roles. And within the family of God, there are many roles. And I'd like to invite you to think about this for a moment. We have spiritual fathers in the family of God. Now, we have one father, and that's God the Father. But within the family of God, we have spiritual fathers. What are spiritual fathers? Spiritual fathers are those who led us to the Lord and those who take responsibility for the quality of the, and the matur- maturity of our faith. What makes me the dad to my kids other than the genetic piece? Well, I take ownership for them. If my son goes and breaks something, I pay the bill. Spiritual fathers take ownership for the faith of others. Paul told Timothy, you have many teachers. You only have one father. Paul was the one that ultimately led Timothy to the gospel. He was his father in the faith. We have fathers in the church and I'm so thankful for fathers. And at some point, I might be getting ahead of myself here. At some point you're saying, hey, no one's fathering me. Hey, it might be your turn to be the father. See, Christians, until they're like 60 years old, they're waiting for someone to come and hold their hand and disciple them. It's time to disciple. I started having kids when I was 21, right? 22, okay? what if I was like 50 and being like, well, I need a dad first. No, you grow by having kids. So we need spiritual fathers in the church. We need those in this family that are going to go, I'm going to take responsibility for the the development of these people's faith. That's spiritual fathers. We have spiritual mothers. The church, historically, I would say, owes much of its health to the faithful nurturing of spiritual mothers. In fact, if you want to do a survey in the New Testament, you will find more spiritual mothers mentioned with honor than spiritual fathers. I haven't done that, but I did just teach the book of Acts, and it seems like that's pretty true. Okay, we have women like Timothy's mother, who Paul takes special reference to, to say that Paul was part, or Tim, uh, Timothy was part of this lineage of faith from his mother. We think of Mary. We think of Lydia, the woman that basically told Paul he was going to come to a church at her house. And she hosted it. She was generous. Think of Priscilla. Priscilla who encouraged Paul while they made tents together in the New Testament Paul coming out of a very discouraging season he met Priscilla and Aquila and she took the time to fill his tank and encourage him as a spiritual mother. I think about uh, Priscilla who pulled pulled uh, Apollos this young fiery gifted preacher aside who didn't even know the full gospel and she graciously told him, "Hey, you're missing a piece of this." Spiritual mothers. We have spiritual siblings. Brothers, sisters, we call it around here, we call it siblinghood. You have brotherhood, you got sisterhood, and you got siblinghood, right? This is the side-by-side, back-to-back, mutual yoking of the gospel, working together, pulling together, caring for each other. Brothers and sisters, the word brother and sister is used all throughout the New Testament. The early church thought of themselves as family. Brothers, sisters, and yes, we have crazy aunts and crazy uncles and crazy cousins. We all got them. We all love them. If you don't know who those are, it's because it's you. (laughs) Okay, thank you. I think of John the Baptist, right? Jesus' crazy cousin. (laughs) It wasn't crazy, but you know, it's like, well, we don't know what to do with that guy, but man, he's fiery, so we're going to throw arms around him, right? Um, Yeah, that guy's a little strange, but he is our, we love aunt and uncle, right? We love them. We love him. Listen, you cannot be replaced in the family of God. You cannot be replaced. You are needed. Listen to me. You are needed. You're needed. You're needed. You're needed. You're more than a butt in a seat. You're more than a bill in a tithe box. You're a role. You have a role in the family of God. And you've been told by Christian culture in the West for too many years that all you need to do is come and sit and Listen. No, you need a family. You need to be part of the family. With distinct roles comes distinct responsibilities. Everyone has a particular set of giftings. Everyone has a particular set of resources, be they physical, be they fiscal, be they spiritual. You have both. You have spiritual resources and you have practical resources. Your family needs both of them. Number eight, and this is important. Stay with me. Number eight, families make room for more family. They make room for more family. Families leave an empty seat at the table in case somebody might drop by. The New Testament has a lot to say about hospitality. Families make room. Families leave margin at the bottom of their prayer list for more people to pray for. Families re- leave room on their walls for more pictures. It's been really sweet. My, my wife and I have been doing foster care for a little while and, and we've been trying to add pictures to our walls every time we get a foster kid. And I just love the idea of 10 years, 15 years of just having a wall filled with pictures of kids that we loved. We leave our space on our wall. We need to be a family here that always has room for more family members. Part of being a healthy family is leaving Margin. Are you willing to make more room in your heart? You know, when I had my first kid, I thought, there's no way I'm ever going to love a kid this much again. And then I had a second kid. You know what happened? My heart grew. And then I had another kid, and my heart grew again. You keep opening your heart, you keep opening your life, and it will grow. God will give you more. Number nine, families grow up. Families grow up and mature. Ephesians 4.13 says, Ephesians says, that the, 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 until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the body of Christ is to grow in maturity to the stature of the fullness of the person of Jesus Christ. Our goal here as a church, one of them is to grow up, to mature, to put away childish ways, to not be like a child tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but to mature as a mature body. The goal of the church is not preservation, it's maturation. It's not how do we keep people in the house, it's how do we grow them up in the house, right? This is why we can tolerate each other's immaturity, because we know that the Spirit of God is working maturity even in immature people. We don't scream at our two-year-olds for falling down when they try to learn how to walk, right? They're going to get it. We also don't tolerate 45-year-old Billy who still isn't toilet trained, don't worry about Billy, you know. He'll, he'll get it. Like, no, we don't do that either. And we got a lot of people in the church that never grew up because they were never asked to. We got to love each other enough to grow as a family. Healthy families don't let family members stay immature forever. Right? They don't. Healthy families help each other grow up. And number 10, lastly, healthy families grow out and reproduce more families. They grow out and they reproduce more families. Everybody knows that when your kids are still living at home at 50, that might be unsustainable and unhealthy. Maybe a specific situation, and I'm not speaking to everything. I don't want to offend anybody. But usually, mom and dad are still making sandwiches for Billy when he's 45. Something's wrong. Usually when grandma and grandpa are raising the kids, it's because something went wrong. Usually when a family is, is is trying to cling to their kids when they're adults and can make it like it used to be by coddling them and serving them, it's usually not healthy. Every parent knows that if they don't start to give their kid more responsibility, it stifles their growth, it's detrimental. Listen, healthy spiritual families create more healthy spiritual families. Are you with me? No, you're not with me yet. Okay, I'll keep preaching that for a few more years. we'll see what happens. Healthy spiritual families create more healthy spiritual families. Okay, the goal here is that we would grow up and that we would make more families. That there would be people here that are so ready to reproduce. That people would be coming to Christ. That the spiritual family of Christ would be growing and multiplying. That we would have to plant more churches. And that's the goal, by the way. Our goal at Philippi is not to be as big as possible. Our goal is not to let Billy live on the couch for 45 years, right? Our goal is to plant more churches because church plants engage people in the work of the ministry, which grows them up and gives them ownership in the church because the church is a family. It's a family farm. That's how we need to think about the church. It's a family farm. It's for the purpose of fruit, and fruit's messy. A healthy church is not graded by its retention. It's graded by its maturation and its multiplication. We're gonna grow up We're going to plant more churches. We're going to grow up. We're going to make more disciples. You grow up by having more kids. Some of you are not growing because you're not taking ownership for anyone's faith but your own. It's time. It's time to invest what you have. We're a family. We need spiritual fathers. So what? Let me land the plane here. In the West, unfortunately, we've lived the wrong metaphor If you get a chance, I did a really cool podcast this week on our Philippi Conference on our YouTube channel with Pastor Rick Boya, who's a personal mentor of mine, and um, we talked about this. So you can go and listen to this. Uh, But the problem in the West is that we have taken the metaphor of family and we've exchanged it for the metaphor of business when we talk about the church. We've taken business metaphors and business principles and we've imported them into the way that we think about church. It's never meant to be a business. It's a family. The church is a family farm, not a feature film. The church is a participation, not production. It's communing, not consuming. It's interdependence, not independence. It's mutual edification, not corporate observation. It's physical therapy, not stagnant apathy. It's a hospital, not a spectacle. It's eternal, not temporal. And it's a body, not a brand. This is what the church was meant to be. It's a family of God. You have a place in it. You are needed. You are welcome here. And I want to say a couple things to a couple people. To those of you that think of the church as family, I just want to remind you how beautiful of a thing we're part of. Isn't it great? To those of you that don't think about the church as a family, I want to invite you to think about the church as a family. To those of you that are not part of the family of God, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to become part of the family of God. Because the gospel says that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved, born again, and you become a follower of him. The family of God is made up of misfits and orphans, broken and bleeding, sinners and sickly, lost and lonely, unfit and unworthy, rejects and renegades, fallen and faulty, deformed and disordered. Welcome home. We are a family of adopted kids who are following and being formed into the image of our older brother Christ, who is the firstborn into a new resurrected world We are part of that. Christmas this year, I want to invite you, when you spend your time with your family or when you remember that you don't really have the family you want or you wish you had your family back, I want you to pause and I want you to remember the substance underneath the Christmas culture that family, true family, was reformed, repurchased, recreated, and Christ was the moment that happened. And Christmas is the moment where we stop and we remember that reality. Amen? Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite Trev back up and uh, just pray. Father, thank you for the family of God. Thank you that I get to be part of it. And Lord, even now as we just sing a few more songs, we take communion together, Lord, I pray. I pray, God, that you would work in the midst of us, Lord, that we would be united together. And as we sing as one body, one song, and one voice, Lord, remind us of the unity that we share. And we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand, guys.